Let's uh, go to prayer as we open up again and study. We're going to be in Luke again, as you know, chapter 1 still. And let's lift up our hearts and our minds to the Father as we put Him first and consider that He is in our presence and that He is in us. Father, we are gathered before You this Sunday, obediently as with every Sunday, because, Father, we wish to know You as You've known us first. Your word, Father, was given for that reason that men and women who are opposed to you naturally, who have been born without the Holy Spirit and therefore without a knowledge of you and of your goodness, might know you, might be reconciled to you, might have the opportunity for eternal life through your Son. And Father, you've grown this small body through the years and now, Father, you've brought us to the Gospels and as we open up Luke again this morning, we pray, Father, that the story as Luke recorded would come alive for us, Father, on these pages before us that we could actually, if it were, be transported back, Lord, into time, into the place, Lord, where You lived and walked this earth, that we might, Lord, know something about those times and about You and Your ministry, Father, through Your Son. But, Father, we might also know, much more importantly, Father, we might know the love the love, Father, that You showed us through the gift of Your Son on the cross. A love, Father, that few of us could ever really appreciate here. And Father, we pray as we teach through Luke this morning that the words we speak would be Your words according to Your will. That we would learn, Father, as You've determined, we would learn that You've provided for through Your Word. And that the Holy Spirit, Father, in each of us, would prompt us into action at the appropriate time and place, Father, to put these words to use in molding ourselves to Christ's image, but also, Lord, in bringing others to know You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Luke, the writer, is preparing us, as we learned last week, for the arrival of Christ. And he's also preparing us for the arrival of John the Baptist, who in turn would prepare the world for the arrival of Christ. We said last week that Luke alone chose to compare the birth of Christ with the birth of John the Baptist. This is the only gospel of the four that goes into detail about John the Baptist's birth. But of course, this makes perfect sense, really, when you consider Luke's purpose in writing this gospel and his emphasis. His account, as we'll study throughout the gospel as we go through Luke, his account emphasizes the human qualities of the man Jesus in fact, if you were to do a quick survey of the Synoptic Gospels, that's the term we use for Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew wrote principally to the Jews, and because the Jews were his audience, he tended to emphasize Jesus as King, as Messiah, as the one who came to fulfill the prophecies that God had given through the Old Testament of a coming Jewish King who would save His people. Mark, on the other hand, wrote his gospel principally for Gentile Romans, for the Gentile Roman church. And if you know anything about the Romans and their culture, you know that they were very big on power and on authority and on positions of authority. And they took a lot of, put a lot of emphasis on who your family was and whether you were a Roman citizen or not. And they gave great emphasis to the emperor and to the fact that he could be God in their eyes. The Roman church brought all of that history with them. And so Mark wrote a gospel that emphasized not the kingship of God, not the 
authority so much, but he rather emphasized the servant nature of our Lord and particularly his sufferings in that servanthood. In other words, he drew a contrast between what the world would hold up as power and might and what God showed true power to be, that he would give his life for another. And then finally, Luke. Luke, as we've been studying, wrote principally to Gentile Greeks, to the Gentile Greek church, and particularly to the man Theophilus that he's already mentioned, but not just Theophilus, but all men like Theophilus who had a Greek perspective as they came to know their Lord. And so he emphasized what was important for the Greeks. Remember, the Greeks held up men. They held up the ideal man, the idea of perfection. Remember, they had the Olympics as part of their heritage. They reveled in how great and powerful and wonderful men could be and how they could build themselves up. And so what Luke wants to do is compete with that mythology of the Greeks by illustrating the perfection of the man of Christ, of the humanity of Christ, that he was the son of man, a phrase Luke uses often. And then last week we learned about the arrival of John the Baptist being announced in advance to Zacharias, his father, and then how Zacharias doubted God's word and received a rebuke in the form of silence. And so now we're going to see the fulfillment of that promise that Elizabeth, Zacharias' wife, would have a child. And now we're also going to begin to look at Mary and Joseph. This is going to be the key, one of the key ideas for, this, for today in how Luke contrasts Mary and Elizabeth. Let's go to Luke 1, where we left off, verse 24. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying... This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. The scripture is saying after these days because it's after Zacharias' service in the temple. Remember last week we said he was part of the division of Abijan, of the priestly divisions, the 24 priestly divisions. And his division had duty for one week period twice a year. And his one week was up. He came home and then Therefore, after these days, after he returned in the temple, his wife becomes pregnant. Now, remember what we learned last week. She's old. His wife is old, probably beyond normal childbearing years. More than that, she's never had a child, so she's considered barren for never having had a child in all her years as a wife. But she was married. She did have opportunity for natural childbirth. She did have the opportunity for the natural process of conception to take place and to produce children. It just hadn't happened. And now we hear that her marriage has in fact produced a child. She is pregnant. A child where she's never had one before. And once she recognizes that she's pregnant, she goes into seclusion. Now that's not unusual. A lot of parents tend to keep quiet about a pregnancy for at least the first few months. And we all know why. Um, my wife and I had uh, the experience of two miscarriages before Catherine came along. And that's not unusual. And you often want to wait beyond that point where there's some danger of a lost baby before you make the decision to announce it. And that's, and that's just natural. In her case, she waits five months. Well, considering her circumstances, how old she was, the fact that this was her first child where she hadn't had any before, maybe that makes sense as well. That she's being doubly careful. She's not taking any chance of being disappointed and bringing others with her. And then notice her immediate response. Her immediate response after the fact of the pregnancy, she credits God and she praises Him. And think with me here for a moment. How much do you think she understood of her husband's experience in the temple? 
as you and I read this, it's very easy for us to fall into the thinking that says, well, of course she isn't surprised that she's going to have a child. Zacharias heard from an angel that she was going to have a child. But Zacharias left the temple mute. He left the temple without the ability to communicate. And we know that he gave some signs or indications to the crowd after he left the temple that something miraculous had happened. But remember the response they had? We can tell something's happened to you. That's not exactly clarity. You know, that's not exactly an intimate understanding of what went on in the temple. So he goes home, of course, and he must have had something to communicate with his wife. I mean, write it down maybe or, or pantomime it or something. But do you, if you think about it, how hard would it have been for him to explain the circumstances in the temple had he even had a voice? So how much harder would it have been to do that without a voice? I would argue that it's probable that though she had some inkling from her husband that something had happened, maybe she puts two and two together and thinks that this is a miraculous baby, I still say it's a sign of her own faith in God that her response in the moment would be to give him full credit for her pregnancy, to attribute it to him. He, she exclaims that God has found favor to take away her disgrace before men. What an interesting phrase. Remember, in that age and in that culture, childlessness was considered a reproach from God. And moreover, it brought reproach from men. It was a, a situation where the woman would be blamed, never the man. And though we know, biologically speaking, it could be attributed to either one, it was always the woman who got the blame. In fact, that was the, originating, that was the whole idea behind having concubines, was to fix the woman's problem. And of course, if the concubines didn't produce, well, they had a problem too. And we'll just keep looking for the concubine that will finally produce. King Henry VIII did much the same thing, didn't he? Looking for a male heir. It's always the woman's fault. And so Elizabeth, right or wrong, had carried that shame her whole life. And her role as a wife was to produce children in that culture, and so she had failed. Now, we obviously are going to suffer reproach from time to time. I don't know so much that this one is the example for our culture, but our appearance... Our weaknesses, maybe our weaknesses in health, our inabilities to do certain things the world expects us to be able to do. I mean, I've seen people, in fact, it's even in my own nature sometimes, it's easy to get down on somebody who seems to always have a health problem, isn't it? Every time you call, they're sick again. Every time you try to you know, plan something, there's sickness interrupts, or you know, they're always telling you about their latest disease or prescription or uh, we had an older couple we knew in Colorado Springs, lovely couple. I mean, just we really enjoyed them, but they were always that way. They're, the only topic of conversation was what their latest health problem was. And after a while, you see them in some negative light because of that, but that's not fair. I mean, if we're talking about true sickness, that's not fair. And neither was it fair for her to carry that burden as well. As Christians, we're going to see it for our faith as much as anything, if we live it. I mean, you can have your faith and not live it such that people won't deride you for it, won't criticize you for it, but then what good is your faith to the world at that point? You've hidden it under a blanket, as Christ said. You put the light under the blanket when you do that. But our lack of, whether it's formal education, our lack of appropriate social status, maybe just to the way we raise our children in homeschooling, for example, or maybe the way we are devoted to honest business practices when the world around us isn't, all of these things can bring us to a point like she was in where the world looks down their noses at us and the world considers us as reproached, as being cursed in some sense. But no matter how much disgrace we have before men, we are made perfect 
in the Lord's eyes by the sacrifice on the cross. So before God, we are not seen in this way of reproach. And likewise, though he may choose to remove our disgrace before men like he did for Elizabeth and for, let's say, Joseph. Remember Joseph in the prison. It doesn't mean he will. It doesn't guarantee that he will. Moses, for example, went exactly the opposite direction in God's plan. Do you know Moses left one of the most exalted positions in the world in that day, turned his back on it, and was forever wandering in a desert till the day he died at the end of that time? I mean, he never got back to a position of glory and honor in the world's eyes for what he did in following God. And in fact, in Hebrews 11.24, we hear Moses had grown up, it says, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, rather... He chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So there's no guarantee that God will remove reproach from you, the reproach that the world sees. But one of the most important growth steps for any Christian, and I would ask you to hear this, is to recognize that our experiences in this world, our joys when they come, and our gains, and as well our losses, our health, our our uh, material happiness in any respect, they are poor measures of righteousness. It's very common in the world we live in today to measure your pleasingness to God and therefore your righteousness by how happy and materially blessed you are. Right? We look at somebody whose life is in the dumps, who is without work or without money or without health, and we say, I wonder what they did to deserve that. Now, the Old Testament has that concept and the Pharisees carry that into the New Testament, but Christ constantly refutes that. Remember the blind men at the well and the Pharisees asked, what did his parents do that he would deserve to be blind? And Christ refutes that principle on its face. It is not that he was blind because of his parents. He was blind so that God's glory might be shown when he was healed. In other words, blame God for the man being blind, not his parents, if you want to attribute blame. Likewise, Elizabeth. Elizabeth in this story is barren most of her life all the way until this last time where she finally gets the blessing of a son. It's not because she did anything wrong. And it's not because she was necessarily not pleasing to God. It was God's purpose to orchestrate the events this way. You and I may not be blessed with the opportunity to do something like she did in bringing along John the Baptist. But... I can tell you conclusively out of Scripture, if you're measuring your own pleasingness to God and your own righteousness by how much material blessing you have, how healthy, wealthy, wise, uh, happy, you know, famous, whatever, then you've got the wrong standard. Your standard should be your Lord on the cross and remember what He put up with. Remember the shame and the, and the, the ending He came to. And yet He was considered very pleasing. In Him, the Father was pleased because of what he did willingly. Well, now, six months into pregnancy, Elizabeth is going to get company, company from a relative in verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. 
And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond, sir, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Okay, well this Gabriel character is a busy angel. He's, he's got a lot of work. And now we see him heading off on another trip, this time to Nazareth. Luke is pretty generous as he describes Nazareth when he says it's a city. I mean, it's a city in the barest of terms. In fact, it was really more of a settlement. Even today, there's barely anything there. So, 2,000 years ago, uh, you know, you talk about a one-stoplight town. This is like a one-camel town. This is one that if you, you know, blink, walking past it, you'd miss it. There's nothing in this little place called Nazareth. In fact, to Luke's Gentile readers, remember Greek readers were primarily his audience, to his readers, anyone who lived outside of Palestine, this would have been a completely unknown place. The name would have had absolutely no meaning. That's how insignificant it was. Remember in John 1:46, can anything good come from Nazareth? It, it, it's a backwater, podunk, nothing settlement. And here Luke begins his contrast between John the Baptist and Jesus. John's parents came from a strict Jewish center of uh, of the religion, center of, of life for the Jew, the city of Jerusalem. Strict in the sense that they were very close adherents to the law. They had the temple there, of course. They had the Pharisees there. It was the big city. It was like coming from Manhattan versus coming from, let's say, Dalhart, Texas, the place we drive through on the way to Colorado on occasion. And Jesus' parents, rather than living in this elaborate city like Elizabeth and her husband, they live in this, as I said, dusty backwater Nazareth. And Nazareth was, a, Nazareth was a place much more influenced by pagan culture than Jerusalem would have been. They would have been much less uh, strict in their observance of the law. It's really like the country mouse and the city mouse. Their relatives were told, but they're very different, and their cities and their culture and their lifestyle would have been very different. Opposite ends of the spectrum, in fact. This angel visits this young woman, Mary, in Nazareth, her name, we think, means exalted one. It's not exactly clear. She's called a virgin, which means very specifically in that culture, she was young and she was unmarried. But unmarried is a relative term. In our culture today, we're unmarried until we're married. Which means we might be engaged ten times over before we finally go through with it and get married. Never mind the fact that in the world out there, you can engage in essentially the same identical behavior being unmarried as you might do when you're married. So really, the marriage is barely a dividing line in life anymore. It's more of a legal issue than anything else. But in those days, a woman would often get betrothed to a man at puberty. In other words, at the point when she began to have the capacity for childbearing, her parents would assign her to a husband right away. There's no dating. There's no shopping around. You had someone for you the moment you were even potentially available. But that didn't mean that the marriage took place right then. Betrothed was a unique term. It's one we don't really have anymore in our culture today. 
It meant that there was a true marriage in place, though it had not been consummated, and nor would it be consummated until the man was in a position to care for that woman, to have a home, to provide for her, to go through the proper way of caring for her and and satisfy the woman's parents as to his ability to do those things. And in the meantime, she would wait for that day, for the consummation of her marriage. But in the meantime, they're married. They're every bit as married as someone who had consummated their marriage. In fact, in that culture, the only way that relationship could be broken after betrothal was on the death of one of the partners or through a divorce. They would have to have gone through a divorce proceeding. It, it's told to us here that her husband-to-be is a man named Joseph, a man descended from King David. In fact, if you were to study the genealogy that when we look at it later in chapter 3 of Luke, Joseph's father, Eli, is the 40th generation after David. It is, as it were, 40 years being a time of testing. It has been 40 generations since the king sat on the throne in the authority that God had given him. And now we have finally Joseph, who's not really the father of Jesus. So it can be said that you would skip Joseph. So after 40 generations, now we are back to the point where God is ready to bring a king back to the earth in all the righteousness and in all the authority of that throne. But 40 years, or 40 generations in this case, were appointed for the nation of Israel to be without that fully sovereign God in the mirror, in the image of God and in His will. We're going to speak more about that when we get to chapter 3. Joseph, as I said, is essentially Mary's husband at this point. Now, I want you to consider the comparisons that are being made by Luke as he's presented this gospel. They may not be readily apparent, Of course, my job is to make them that way. Mary's a young woman, a very young woman. Betrothal would happen at puberty, so it's likely that she's in her early teens. Elizabeth, on the other hand, is a woman so old she's past normal childbearing age. Mary has never before made any attempt to bring forth life. She's never been married in in the full sense. She's never had a husband to try to procreate with. So Mary has never even attempted to have a child. Elizabeth, on the other hand, has been working her whole life unsuccessfully to have a child. Mary is from a place where religious significance, or at least in man's eyes, religious significance, is completely lacking. Elizabeth, on the other hand, is from a place that's steeped in the culture and the formality of the Jewish religion and in their practices and in focus on carrying out the law. In fact, her husband is a priest. Her husband is part of the the official bureaucracy of the Jewish faith. And in that sense, even their husbands are a contrast. Zacharias, the priest, Joseph, who can legitimately lay claim to the throne of David. As a descendant of David, he could legitimately lay claim to being a king of Israel, were it ever an opportunity for him. And so it seems clear, as Luke has laid out these two stories in this obvious, contrasted way, that the two women contrast the two covenants. The old and the new. The old and new covenant. The old has a desire to create life within our own dead bodies by our own acts. Working fruitlessly to produce life where our dead bodies cannot do it. By our own will. Versus a new covenant, a new faith, exemplified by Mary, where not of her own work, but of God. Not externally, but but internally. Life given by God freely to those who He chooses. The New Covenant. In Elizabeth, 
She stands as an example of the old system of man-made rules, of dead religious practices, of a husband, in fact, that carries them out, following the law outwardly. Versus Mary, a picture of new grace to be found apart from works. Humble, unadorned faith, without all the trappings of religion, without the pomp and circumstance that men have become so accustomed to and took as faith rather than as simply pictures of faith. Of the contrast between men ruling through a systems of law and regulations and God reigning in the hearts of His people. And finally, even through the children, the child John, who would be the last of the Old Testament prophets foretelling the arrival of Jesus, who would be the new Adam, the man who would set men free from slavery under the law by grace. It's a picture that Luke is trying to draw out here to, to illustrate that one is old and passing away and one is new and coming by God's power. And the two then reflect the difference in the covenants. When Gabriel arrives at Mary's door, you notice how differently the scene played out than it did with Zacharias? The, contrast, the contrasting there? It's a fundamentally different response from Mary than the one that Zacharias gave. Mary embraces the statement that the angel makes, never asks for proof, but she does say one thing. She does ask for clarification on how. How could this happen? And that's natural. I mean, she's a virgin. She doesn't have a husband that shares a marriage bed with her. How does she expect to have a child? The fact that she asks how implicitly means she believed it was going to happen. If you don't believe it's going to happen... You don't really go to the next question and say, well, explain to me how this is going to work. You might say, prove it to me, <laughs> like Zacharias. No, she was concerned because she couldn't reconcile how, as a virgin, she could have a child, and yet she was just told she would. Gabriel simply answers that conception would be by the Holy Spirit himself. In other words, God himself is the father. Mary would be the mother, but God himself would be the father of this child. In fact, did you notice that the angel gives God's revelation of this coming child to the woman in this case, whereas before he gave it to the man? In the case of Zacharias and Elizabeth, they found out about their new child because the man heard it. But in this case, the woman hears about it, not Joseph, Mary. Luke is making yet another contrast here. Remember, Luke's intended audience here is Theophilus. It is a Greek audience. And the Greeks had reason, and particularly Theophilus, as was apparent in the early part of this book or this chapter, they had reason to need proof or evidence for what they believed. Remember that's what Luke said he was writing for? So that you'd have reason to believe what you've been taught? The Greeks were all about proof. They loved logic and proof and didactic kinds of, of, of discovery of new knowledge. And they also have to remember the Greeks had their own religion based on stories. We call it mythology today, but they wouldn't have called it that. They saw it as truth. They had stories that included God, gods in their culture producing children by mating with women. Remember? Zeus is rumored to have many different children, offspring, from many different gods and of, from women. So if you go to a Greek and you say, I've got to tell you about a faith that you don't know anything about, it's the true faith, the one that's given to us by the God that created the universe. Oh, really? Tell me about it. Well, it begins with a baby that comes from God mating with a woman. I've heard this one before. Let me guess. It's Zeus, right? You see how troublesome that would be for a Greek audience to begin hearing about a new faith that seems to start in much the same way as their mythology does? And so Luke wants to make some points even as he tells the truth of the story. And he begins by saying that though they had a woman involved in the birth of this son, the father is not the earthly father, it is God. 
But yet it is not a product of God mating with the woman, as the Greeks would have it be, but it is rather through the power of the Holy Spirit, the child placed in the woman's womb, not by some uniting between God and the woman, but rather by God's power directly placing the child in the woman. That's a fundamental difference, particularly to a Greek, because it changes the nature of the relationship between the two. And by the way, every other faith you want to mention typically has prophets, they have some other kind of representative of God, or they even consider people to be gods themselves. You know, that's not something unique to Christianity. The storyline itself is not unique. In fact, Satan often plays on the true storyline of Christ in how he places falsehoods in the minds of people because the closer they seem, the more you just mix them all together, right? The less the distinction, the less there's any truth apparent to an unbeliever in the message of Christianity. But what they all lack, that Christianity has on its side, what they all lack is proof of a deity's endorsement. The deity's endorsement of that story. The ultimate proof. The only kind of proof that can prove their claim true. And that is power over death. You know where Confucius is? In the ground. You know where Buddha is? In the ground. Muhammad? Somewhere in the ground. Never seen again after they died. But Christ, though He died, was seen alive walking the earth afterward and proved Himself to men time and time again for many days. In other words, the others can claim that they have some insight that they are either representatives of God or they are God themselves in some form. But sure enough, when death came, they couldn't beat it. But when death came to Christ, He won over it and was resurrected and lived again. I would argue that common sense alone dictates that you go with the God who has power over death because any God that doesn't offers us very little in the long term. Christ alone has that proof. And even though John the Baptist was a child created by God through divine intervention, the revelation of his arrival was given to Zacharias because it was going to be Zacharias' physical child. And that's the distinction. Mary finds out that she's having a child rather than Joseph. Because it's not Joseph's child. It's God's child through Mary. Zacharias finds out about the coming of John the Baptist, on the other hand, because it will be Zacharias' child. God was divinely involved because it required His involvement to make Elizabeth cease to be barren, but that doesn't mean God put the child in Elizabeth in the same way He did Mary. No, it was a normal physical union that produced John the Baptist. And so Luke wants God to receive credit for producing the child, but he wants His audience to understand that this child came by natural means. And with Mary, it came through a virgin. Gabriel also mentions that her son is going to be the Son of the Most High, the very Son of God. You know, that term Most High, that's a common term. In fact, the Greeks used that term for their own gods to describe their chief deity, in fact. There's no doubt here that Luke is testifying to Theophilus and really to all Greeks that Jesus was going to be both a true man and truly God at the same time, which is the mystery that we all have studied since then. And he also wants his Greek readers to appreciate the humanity of this God. You remember the first Adam? Remember back in chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis, if you can possibly go back that far. Remember the first Adam? Was he born of a natural union? No. Do you realize the first Adam was essentially created under almost identical circumstances to the man of Christ? Granted, Adam wasn't put in the womb of a woman. He was created by God's hands directly. But truly, that's just a, 
That's just a mechanism to get what God wanted. It was in both cases God creating life apart from the normal procreation process that has followed since. So Adam really didn't have a mother, and his father was God. Likewise, it's fair to say Christ, though Mary carried him, was not his mother in the traditional sense of the word. God was the father and brought Christ into her womb. So really, Adam and Christ were created much the same way. And Adam was created perfect, without sin, as was Christ. But Adam disobeyed God. And when he disobeyed God, he introduced sin. We, we studied all this. And that sin changed his nature. And that's the thing I think some Christians don't understand. It changed his spiritual nature. In a moment, he became a different creature. And just as God said that animals and man himself would create offspring of the same kind, after their kind, after their kind is the phrase we're seeing in, in the first chapter of Genesis. Once his nature changed and he became sinful, then from there, from there on, the children of that man and all that would follow will be born with that same nature because God made humanity and all creation to reproduce after its own kind. So here we have now a man who would forever produce children after his own kind, who were sinful and with a nature that was now opposed to God. An enemy of God, Scripture tells us. And rather than end it there, rather than God say, okay, that's it, it's messed up, it's never going to be better, I'm going to destroy it all, he makes a plan for redemption. Look at the majesty of this plan in light of what we're seeing go on with Mary. Here's what God needed to fix the problem that Adam introduced. Here's the problem that God was facing. The problem was he needed someone who could start where Adam started, but yet not fall as Adam fell. And that person, whoever it was, couldn't come from Adam because that person would automatically start off with a sinful nature and would fall moment one. There wouldn't be any opportunity for them to avoid sin. Their whole nature would be defined by it. So he needed someone to start again like Adam did. And then, having produced that person, God could take all the wrath that His justice demanded and that the first Adam and all his kind after him richly deserved, take all that wrath and then pour it out on this second Adam who didn't have any wrath deserved of his own because if he did, then he's just getting what he deserves for himself. He's really part of the same problem. So he's got to be that second Adam without sin, getting all the wrath that the first one really deserves and then, by doing that, he could save the first Adam by sacrificing the second one. But as long as the second one was willing to do that, because remember, if the second one wasn't willing to do that, God can't force him to take wrath that's not his, because that's injustice. That's against God's nature and his character. God would be unjust to put wrath on someone who didn't deserve it and didn't want it. So he needed someone who could be born without sin, live without sin, and willingly take the wrath that he didn't deserve. All of that had to happen so that the one Adam who he started with could be saved. Of course, that also requires that this Adam willingly accept the sacrifice of the other one on his behalf. Because if he doesn't, if he says, no, thank you, I'll pay for it myself, then it doesn't work for that person. That's the gospel message. We call that the gospel of grace. But what does it take to produce someone in the mold of the first Adam, but
but yet without the potential to fall like the first Adam. Because if I create another one like I did, if I'm God and I create another Adam out of the ground, and say, okay, your job now is to live your whole life without sin and then let me sacrifice you and pull my wrath on you, who could do that? Would you sign up for that? Could you live your life without sin? You know, it's interesting. Could you be Adam in the garden and not do what Adam did? I wonder. That's the dilemma God was facing. And so what he did in his perfect plan was produce a pregnancy that allowed for a new Adam, one that did not have the nature of the old, who could then be brought up and do the thing that God needed done on the cross. So he produces another Adam, something we'll study more about as we get to the crucifixion later in the book. Finally, Gabriel announces to Mary that her relative Elizabeth has also conceived. You know, he calls her a relative. We don't know what that means. There's no record in Scripture of how they're related. The word actually means kinsman, which is actually a pretty broad term. It, it could just mean that they both were Jewish. It could just be that they're both involved in God's plan of redemption, like you and I are kinsmen by Christ. It could mean that. Or it could mean that they're cousins or that there's some physical family relationship between them. We do know that Elizabeth came from the line of Levi. Mary came from the line of Judah. So they're not kinsmen in terms of tribe. But in any event, why does the, offer, why does the angel offer her this piece of information? Why does the angel bring up Elizabeth at this point? Well, first, it's proof of God's ability to do anything. Mary has just heard that she's going to have a child without a husband. As amazing as that sounds, he says, well, by the way, do you want proof? No, she didn't even ask for proof, unlike Zacharias. But though she doesn't ask, the angel's going to give her one anyway. He says, go check out Elizabeth. Have you heard? She's pregnant. That, that would be, to give you the comparison, that would be... As if somebody in here was being told that they were going to have something miraculous happen and though you don't say you doubt it, though you don't ask for proof, maybe inside there's just a little bit of doubt and God says, well, by the way, you know your grandmother, the one in the rest home? She's six months pregnant. just want to prove to you that I can do anything. And that's what's going through her mind. I don't know how old Elizabeth was, but I'll tell you that however old she was, she was so old that the thought of her having a child was itself a miraculous thought. And he's given her this piece of information to encourage her, to assure her that God can do what He says He can do. And as proof, you've already got six months head start in Elizabeth so that you'll get a chance to understand this is in fact something God can do. After all, Mary didn't know Elizabeth was pregnant, remember? She's hiding this fact from everybody. Which Ari would tell you, even in that little detail, is evidence of God's sovereignty over this plan that Elizabeth wouldn't hold back that information longer than usual so that when God was ready to bring that information to Mary, it would have impact. It would be news, in other words. Even something as small as that, God is working out the details. Because now her pregnancy would be self-evident. At six months, Mary could go see it. In fact, that's what she does. And then at the end, Mary calls herself a bondservant of God and says, let everything happen to me that you've said would happen. Let it be the way you've said it will be. You know, you have to take a moment to appreciate the courage of that statement. And you have to appreciate it in that culture. In fact, it's really an indictment of our culture today that a statement like that doesn't cause you to gasp. The fact that we read that statement and you all just sort of breezed right through it is a sign of how far down our culture has come. Because what Mary has just said is, "Allow, I, I hear your words, God, and let it be so that I will be pregnant without a husband. 
Let it be so, God, that I would take a child and bear a child in this world, though I'm not married. Let it be that way. She was agreeing to become a pariah and an outcast in her culture. She was agreeing to be hated. She was agreeing to be completely misunderstood. People were going to assume she was not chaste before her marriage. They're going to shun her. Her child is going to be seen as a bastard child, to use the literal term. And she's going to accept this sentence of worldly condemnation willingly because she knows it's God's will. And she understands that it's not her sin. It is not shameful, but the world will still, still see it that way. And even in this, Luke is offering yet another contrast between Mary and Elizabeth. Consider that Elizabeth's child, what did she say when she found out she was going to have a child? She rejoiced because her reproach before the world was being removed. She was going to be seen in the eyes of the world as someone who was worthy now because she was having a child. And here's Mary, who will have probably for her entire life a stigma, the reproach of being a woman who had a child out of wedlock. And consequently, I think Elizabeth continues to reflect the Old Covenant, even in this detail. And I'll show you how. The Old Covenant, were you to follow it, were you to live it out, with or without true faith, but simply, let's say, as a Pharisee, to live it out, you're going to produce outward praise. You're going to receive the praises of men. You're going to be considered a high member of society, an upstanding individual. And the reason is because you're going to be conforming to the expectations of your culture. The expectations of the Jewish culture was that you would live the law righteously, self-righteously, in fact. And you would try to outdo one another in how well you could live the law. And you would try to outdo one another in how picky you could be about whether somebody else was keeping the law or not. And the fact that I could find fault in somebody else's adherence or lack thereof in the law was a credit to me because I knew something they didn't know or I was more watchful or more attentive. That's why the Pharisees gave Christ such a hard time about His disciples pinching heads of grain as they walked through a field on Sabbath and we're criticizing them on that basis because they considered that work. Harvesting. Although the law actually provided for doing exactly that thing. That's how picky they could be. It was all outward expectations of righteousness. And here we see Elizabeth being given that opportunity to be seen as outwardly righteous in the way that the Old Covenant always produced righteousness outwardly. And then Mary, reflecting the New Covenant, She's going to bring upon herself and ultimately upon her followers, upon those who would follow her son Christ, a world of scorn and derision. Because we're not willing to conform to the world anymore. Because what God has given us a desire for is different than what the world has a desire for. You know, the world's desire is that Mary be chaste until marriage. The motives for the world in chastising her after the fact were purely about one of conformance to the law, about setting up barriers to righteousness of saying if you fail at any test that I deem an important one I can forever look upon you as low and unworthy because you're not showing the righteousness that we want you to show it was a means of, of pushing people down not of lifting people up it was a mean of, means of catching people not of restoring people the new covenant is not about righteousness through conformance outwardly it is through changes inwardly that only God can produce and that's what differentiated Mary now from the world. Changes inwardly that she didn't have control over, that were righteous, that were designed for God's good purpose, but from the outside world they weren't what we expected, therefore we condemned 
if we were in that day. And now, as we go into next week, we're going to see Luke bring these two storylines together as Mary and Elizabeth meet and share their good news. And we'll hear the Magnificat of Mary praising the Lord and Elizabeth declaring her to be the mother of her Lord and so on. This meeting that we're going to study next week produces some of the most compelling examples out of the Gospels of God's sovereignty in the lives of His people. And I'll point those out as we go through there. And as we end today, we're going to end in prayer as always. I also want to end with a short reading out of Hebrews. Because I'd like us to to be still and settled and and have a uh, contemplative, meditative, reflective mood, if you will, on, on what it means that God would take human form and come down and willingly sacrifice Himself for the sake of the first Adam and all that came from Him. The... The sheer magnitude of that, the writer in Hebrews, I think, makes probably the best commentary in Scripture on that event and on its significance. So as we finish out reading this, and then I'll go right into prayer at the end, and Dan to the music, I, I ask that you would enter into a time of a, of a prayerful meditation, of a reflection on the words of God as we read them back to Him, on the nature of His Son's sacrifice. In Hebrews 2, verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one is testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under His feet, for in subjecting all things to Him, you left nothing that is not subject to Him. But now, we do not see all things subjected to Him. But we do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for Him for whom all things and through whom all things are in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, He does not give help to angels, but He gives help to the descendant of Abraham. And Father, the help You've given us through Your Son on the cross is unimaginable. Father, when we were born and as we grew, we did not necessarily sense our evil nature, Father. Men do not live their lives calling themselves evil. But Father, we were born opposed to You. We were born hating You, Father. And we lived a life that showed that hate. And then one day, Father, just as You did with Mary, the Holy Spirit came into our lives and planted in us, Father, a new life 
planted in us a, a life that could know You and could please You by faith. And yet, Father, even before that day happened, many, many centuries earlier, Father, Your Son came into the world to live sinlessly, to be the true Adam, Father, the one that, that could survive the tests of temptation. And then, Father, He willingly took punishment knowing it was not His own so that You could in fact show mercy and favor on another Adam and all those who could come from Him. Father, that is the definition of love. And as we studied in the Gospel today, Father, that love was a plan brought about by You, but planned from the beginning of time. Father, we cannot earn what You've given us already. And we please You, Father, not because we live up to the promise, but rather, Father, because we have faith in Your ability to make up the difference. I ask, Lord, in the week to come that our faith will grow and that that growth, Father, will be seen in our actions and that our actions, Father, will be pleasing to You and that our trust in You, Father, will be so evident that others might ask for a reason for the hope that is within us. And we thank You, Lord, for this study, for this opportunity to gather, for the fellowship and friendship and for the love amongst us. And we pray, Lord, that this would not end, that Your will would be we would return next week and share again, Lord, in all the wonderful things that You bring for us here in Your study and in Your prayer, in praise and in fellowship. We give You these things, Lord, praying to You in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.